Hey there, it's Sophia, founder and CEO of Girlboss, and this is Girlboss Radio, the show for and about ambitious women exploring the wins, losses, and insights learned on the winding road to success. So just to start off, I'm sick right now, but it's still me, but I know I sound sick, so please just bear with me. It'll only be here in the introduction. We have a a great episode that we recorded a little bit earlier when I didn't sound like shit, so don't worry, it sounds real good. So for this week's show, you'll hear my chat with the lovely Emma Greed. Emma is the co-founder and CEO of Good American, which maybe you've heard about because it had the most successful denim launch in history. Good American made $1 million in sales on their first day in business. Emma launched the brand in 2016 with her business partner. You might have heard of her. Her name's Khloe Kardashian. And since its launch, Good American has made waves in the industry for its emphasis on inclusivity in every sense of the word. Good American is known for its incredible size offerings, which start at double zero and go up to size 24. And if that's not enough, Emma decided to create a whole new size, size 15, just so that the brand could make clothes that fit just right. And before I forget, Emma also made it a priority to make sure Good American's clothes are shot on models across the size spectrum. So literally, no matter what size you are, there's a model wearing that size jeans on the website. It's honestly groundbreaking. But none of that is easy to achieve, even if the vision is on point. Here's how Emma described the experience during our conversation. So we're making three patterns for every SKU to cover the size range. And it really is uh, technically very, very complex. The other thing that was really, really hard for me was just finding the talent. So, you know, you could find designers, especially denim designers in L.A., but finding people who had the plus size experience, you know, it was like retraining everyone. And sometimes, you know, you get there was so much pushback in the early days. You've sent us the wrong measurements. Like, no, we haven't sent you the wrong measurements. It's just a big size. Stay tuned for my conversation with Emma. We talk about how her upbringing helped fuel her ambitions to be a CEO and how she got her start working behind the scenes in production. Plus, she lets us in on the details of how she first pitched her big idea to Kris Jenner and later how she pitched Khloe Kardashian. You don't want to miss it. Here's our conversation. Welcome to Girlboss Radio. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me. And we were just talking about we've existed kind of on in one another's periphery. It's true. But haven't formally met, but we've been in a bunch of rooms together. It's true. And it's I know true. your husband and I know John Howard, who mm-hmm. I think you've worked with. He's one of my investors. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, so it's Our great to... Our paths have crossed. You've like spoken so at the rally. I did speak at the rally. It was like literally, one, it was one of the things that really crept up on me because I live five minutes from the UCLA campus. So I just kind of got in the car and I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to this thing and it's going to be so, you know, like Sunday, I'm going to be in and out. And I was so blown away. There are women I met at that rally that I still speak to now, uh, seven, eight months later. And yeah, for me, it was a real thing. It was a massive eye opener because I kind of feel like I know what you do and what you were starting and I followed your career for a long time but actually being there and having that live event and speaking to all these women it was yeah. a the it was energy a thing. is amazing and it we hear nuts. so many stories of of women who 
you know, meet one another and start businesses together, or they'll come back the next year to the rally together yeah. as friends. Um, and we actually have the next rally coming up April 25th. I can't wait. Here in Los Angeles. So that's really exciting. Um, so I want to start at the beginning, as I always do, with the careers of the incredible women who come on Girl Boss Radio. And when I say first job, I'm going to ask you a question about your first job. I don't mean like your first job out of college, like your first legitimate job. <laughs> I mean <laughs> legitimate, like hopefully you were paid above the table. But in high school, in middle school, were you a babysitter? Was there Were there menial jobs? Were there retail jobs? Oh, what was your first crap so, job? So many of them. So my real first crap job, I had a paper round when I was 12. And I used to get 20 pounds a week for the paper round. And you'd have to w- wake up really early every day, do the papers. I'd do it before school. And it was kind of, it did two things. Obviously, you, you got the money at the end of it. So it was enormously rewarding at 12 to have a full 20 pound note that was yours to spend. Um, but it also like made me fall in love with the mornings like this like crazy early time that I still now that's such a big part of my day I wake up no one's up I have this peaceful moment and I used to go around with my trolley um, and deliver the newspapers and so that was my first proper job and then I worked in a delicatessen Ooh, what what did, what was your favorite meat oh, I know. <laughs> honestly and, and another another lifelong thing of mine um as I'm in this month of being a kind of vegan slash vegetarian um I learned to slice that was my thing so you learn to slice like parma ham and salami Those and are all put, such beautiful things it was waking it was up early thing. zenning out <laughs> and being a woman who slices meats like a pro really well very thin put and a charcuterie together for guests <laughs> that looks like a cornucopia I'm sure well it's true right because you get all of these things that become like for me food is a real passion of mine and actually like putting things together really beautifully and I learned all of that working in the deli you know I worked there after school two days a week and all day Saturday and Sunday and I loved it (laughs) is there anything you learned there that you've taken to your career today Um, Actually, yeah, there are things, you know, really how to deal with people, right? When you're, it's a busy lunch break or people are like scurrying around trying to get their dinner and, you know, there's that moment of you kind of being part of somebody's life, whether you kind of like it or not, and then you absorb their mood. And there's a way to be and a way to serve people and be disarming and immediately get them on your side. Even if you've got a queue of 10 people waiting for sandwiches, you can give someone eye contact and give them a smile. And I think they're things that I do even now, you know, when I walk into a room, I think it's important to acknowledge everyone in the room and to really, you know, just disarm people in a way right just be nice and smile give eye contact it's a word I use a lot and you never hear people use it true and it's true because you walk into a room everybody's a stranger everybody thinks that you're probably walking in with ego and they're armed yeah right I mean the whole idea is that you're disarming people people walk into a room and they're armed to deal with someone that they don't know and I find that humor and like self-deprecation, which, you know, that's that's a whole nother conversation. It's usually, yeah. But and for me, it's also kindness, right? Like people that, uh, you know, human nature means that we want to be seen and we want to be recognized. And so much of what we do at Good American is about making everybody feel seen and recognized. And sometimes that's just as simple as saying hi and giving eye contact. And I feel like now, especially in the age that we're living in, There's less and less of a reason to interact with humans. And by interact, I mean like say hello when you're in a store because you could just kind of hand over your phone and you kind of go through this like robotic way of doing things that used to, you know, mean that you had to have human interaction.
interaction, like buying something and accepting change and like having a conversation, how are you? And so I just try to bring those things into my everyday because they make my day better. And so there's all of that that you learn very early on, you know. And you've had an impressive career. Um, I've had it. I feel like I've been working for a long time. To entertainment marketing. (laughs) And I want to get a little bit into that. Uh, One of the positions you held was at Inca Productions. Yeah, absolutely. And you ran the endorsement and sponsorship organization. Yeah, so that was really sponsorship um, to begin with. That's where I really kind of cut my teeth. It was an event production company. And my big love in my life has always been fashion. You know, I loved fashion. I wanted to be part of that. Growing up in London, like London Fashion Week would happen right around you. And um, and that was my big passion. I just wanted to be close to the designers. And I found myself in a company where you're essentially doing production, which is building the stages. You weren't that close to the designers, really. You're trying to make their visions come true. And to do that in London, and required you know a lot of those designers at the time and still now to take brand partnerships and sponsorships and so I found myself in this position kind of being like a natural hustler of you know being the person to broker the deals and so that was really where my career started. How did you parlay that into pioneering the business of designer collaboration so you went from the kind of behind the scenes to the front of the scenes to client Mm -hmm. services to dealing with big name talent who did you have to convince how did you convince people to to bring you to the front and um get off the get off from behind the stage onto the front of the stage you know it's it's such a good question because when i think about it i was literally backstage right you are putting up tables and makeup mirrors and rails and you are not part of the creative process even if you want to be when you're in production um you're really taking somebody's vision and making that come to life but you know you're building sets at the end of the day and so for me it was always about getting closer to the creativity and my way to do that was to be part of the financial conversation everybody needs money to make these things happen I happen to be a naturally good negotiator and I just started doing stuff like in my own naive way like I called an uncle who's a football agent I asked him how he got players sponsored and he said to me this is you know you just you have to get in touch with the brands and you have to make a deal and I was like well how do you get paid and he said you take 20% and for about three years that was my thing I was like I'm going to be the 20% girl whatever I make I like whatever I make for somebody else I'm going to take 20% of it so I kind of had this what now I understand as a business model at the time it was like how am I going to get paid how am I going to make these guys pay my wage and I just kind of forced my way in the room by being relentless I wasn't particularly good at anything I just had tenacity that made me call 500 brands you know I was that person that like looked at a list and went well I don't have any contacts but if I call 500 people 10 of them will like you know come back to me and two of them will have a meeting and one of them I'll be able to get some money out of and it really was that naive in the beginning I mean that's entrepreneurship yeah and I just didn't think of it like that at the time because I thought that was hustle like where I come from I was like just keep going until someone says yes but now I understand it is entrepreneurship I just um I just had like a a feeling inside me that I knew that I was ambitious at a very, very young age. And I just thought I'm just going to break down the doors until it happens for me because I wasn't in a glamorous situation. I I had zero connections and I just thought I need to make them to be able to do what I want to do. Was it scary to work pretty much on commission? You eat what you kill, right? Honestly, if if you don't get a deal done or you have a dry spell. Yeah. It's a lumpy business. It, do you know what it is? That's the way to say it. it really is a lumpy business. And that's why I had to supplement myself. So I think for about six or seven years, I literally worked 
seven days a week. So I did my day job at the production company and then I'd go and work in stores on Saturday and Sunday. So I worked on the King's Road and then I actually made more money like in the shops than I did at my (laughs) desk job because that commission was really good. And if you're a good salesperson, that was guaranteed. I was like, of course I can sell those coats and shoes. That's easy. Um, But yeah, so for a long time it was supported by my retail job. and, And that was fine because again, I was just trying to get close to fashion and then working in a clothes shop for me was like, you know, you're close, <laughs> you're right in it. Did you ever think you'd be a CEO? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we don't have yearbooks in in English schools, but I kind of, you know, if we did, I feel like I would have been the most likely to succeed. Like I, I was very, very clear and very purposeful from very, very early on in my kind of life. And, and so you, you started your career selling. Yeah. I mean, in many ways selling, right? Absolutely. Reaching out to people, Cold knowing calling. how to pitch them, cold calling. And at some point, you're selling to Kris Jenner. <laughs> yeah. What? What? What is that moment like? What did you do to prepare? What did you say to her? It's so funny. Well, see, the good thing about someone like Kris Jenner, she's always open, right? So she's. It's not somebody that you kind of have to go into and be like, please see me. And I think that, you know, you look a lot of successful managers and agents and they're not, you know, Chris is someone who's open for business. And in the days that I was, in the very early days of me knowing her and working with her, she would take calls. And she was one of the managers who, quite frankly, I couldn't get every manager in Hollywood to take my call. But Chris took my calls and she took me seriously. And then we began having a relationship and I'd meet her in Paris. And it that was always fabulous because you were like in Paris having lunch, you know, and that's that's nice, whoever it is. And we, um, Chris was one of my first sort of Hollywood relationships where I'd meet with some regularity and have a good dialogue about what was happening, what she was seeing, what I was seeing with brands. And we actually became like friends. And I thought she was, of course, magical and How did that fabulous. happen, though? It's like my first relationship <laughs> in entertainment is Chris Jenner. For those of us listening, for me, hey, I want to go pitch Chris Jenner. I don't know why. Right? <laughs> Yeah, anything. Hey, She'll Chris, make it work. Me. <laughs> well, you know, she really wasn't my first. It would be unfair to say she was my first. At that point, I had an agency, ITB, which I'd started in London. I subsequently opened offices in LA and New York. I then closed an office in LA, and we can talk more about that. Um, but I had a pretty successful agency. And so I really built my career based on those sponsorship relationships that I'd kind of got in the early part of my career working with big beauty brands and big fashion brands and when I started my first company of my own I took those relationships into that company so I had the big buyers I almost had that kind of seal of approval well she's working with Dior and she's working with L'Oreal and she's working with H&M and so I had those brands almost kind of you know verifying me as an individual worth meeting and so you can get certain lawyers agents managers on the phone and then I did something very early on um, in ITB, I signed I signed a deal with Natalie Portman and Dior, and I basically leveraged that into every single other client that I ever had. I think yeah. we still they still talk about that now. <laughs> I mean, I think your story is an example of it's not about what you have; it's about what you do with what you have. A hundred percent. And I think a lot of it, you know, it comes down to my upbringing. I come, you know, my mum's a single mum. There were four girls, and I think she instilled in all of us this great sense of self worth, and it's taken me a long time to to really understand that and to understand what it's meant in terms of my career trajectory but I never thought that I couldn't I never had those like voices in my head being like 
you know, this is going to be really tough or this is like one step too much for you, Emma. I always had the mentality of, you know, well, if you meet me, you'll you'll love me. Can like, you be my mom? You, <laughs> you have two kids, right? I do have two kids, yeah. And you still I wake up and zen out before they wake up? Yeah, I have to. What right? time? That's a lot. I'm up early. I'm an early bird. 5.15 on the dot. I work out before they get up. What time do you go to bed? Uh, do you, you know, I, I really am not in my bed until like 11. I need a good, I need a solid six hours, but I'm fine on five, five and a half. Do you drink? Yeah, I love drinking. I, I'm not from LA. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> I made of different stuff, babe. <laughs> How do you describe your leadership style? So um, my leadership style has changed a lot over the years. I used to be such a micromanager and then wondered why people failed under me. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Um, and now I've grown and I really, really am all about putting the best people in the room, right? It's like I need people that have complementary skills to me. I need people that know what I don't know and I need to give them the freedom to go out and do their best job. And I think that I have extremely high expectations of everyone that works around me. And I have, uh, you know, I, I think about accountability. Like if, if that's your area, that's your area, right? You're going to go, you're going to get on with it. I'm not going to, you know, micromanage you, but I have very high expectations and I keep people to their promises to me. And that's something that, you know, doesn't always go down that well with people. You know, there are a lot of people that come in and they want, you know, they talk a good game and they have these ideas of themselves um and I I like to hold people accountable if you said you were going to do something I expect it and if you don't then you know we have to deal with the ramifications of that and I'm not um I'm not shy I'm not emotional in that sense I think that's all been beat out of me over the years that I've been a boss (laughs) So it's 2020, it's a new year, it's a new decade, scary. And you're probably in the middle of all of those New Year's resolutions. You're trying to level up in your career, your money, your ambitions, and so much more. It can be a lot to take on, but you don't have to do it alone. In fact, at Girlboss, we're making it easy for you to find your support group this year so you can knock out all of those New Year's resolutions. So how can you find your support group? I have an answer. Well, you can join us at the next Girlboss Rally this April 25th here in Los Angeles. That's right, we're back and registration is live for the Girl Boss Rally LA and registration is filling up. You can expect a jam-packed day full of workshops, panels, and inspiring talks with some of today's most inspiring entrepreneurs, small business owners, execs, and thought leaders, and a lot of incredible women from across the country and across the globe, which may be the best thing that you get out of the Girl Boss Rally. Best friendships, co-founders, so many relationships have been formed at the Girl Boss Rally. It's something that we're really proud of with the work that we do here at Girl Boss and something that we want to do more of with the work we do here at Girl Boss. You don't want to miss out, so head on over to girlbossrally.com and register to find out more. Okay, so you get to Chris Jenner, and then how do you get to Chloe from there? You know, it was one of those things, I have to be honest, Chris I'd done some work with in the past, um, other agreements for the other sisters, uh, endorsement-based deals. And when I had the idea for Good American, I had one person. I was like, I want to work with Chloe Kardashian. This is someone where, you know, I was really looking to replicate what I'd seen in other deals and agreements I put together, which was like this acceleration down to, you know, celebrity, uh, 
you know, or a celebrity being part of something. And I really had Chloe in my mind because I was like, she embodies all the values. You know, she's been bigger. She's been smaller. She always exudes confidence. And, you know, she's got this incredible shape. And so I pitched it to Chris and she was like, yeah, it sounds interesting, but you need to come and see Chloe. And at that point, I really thought, well, this is just a chance, right? She's going to be the first person that I ever speak to. I really would love to do this with her and you just have to go. And actually it forced me to finesse my idea a lot because at that point when I pitched Chris, it was just an idea in my head. And so on the plane over to meet Chloe, I put together, it was a PowerPoint mm-hmm. and like I did a PowerPoint and then, you know, and there's so so many things and I looked at it um, actually just at the beginning of this year as I was kind of thinking about New Year's resolutions. There's so many things in that original presentation that form the basis of the business today. And I wrote in that presentation, I was like, you know, for this company, representation will matter. And it was one of the lines that Chloe repeated to me again and again in our meeting. She's like, I just love that idea that we're going to be representative for women and that that will cover size or race or where you come from, your background. And, you know, that's what I feel really strongly about. And so when I met Chloe and I explained to her what I was trying to do, she literally, and this is such an overuse, like she finished my sentences. She was the girl that I was trying to market to. And I just went, that's it. I've just got to get her on board. And at the end of the meeting, she she actually said to me, so so what should I do next? Like, where, what are we going to do? Where, how are we getting on with this? And I was pregnant at the time of my second child. And I went, you know, I was so panicked because I thought, how am I going to do, yeah, how am I going to do this? I've got a baby coming. I don't live in this country. You know, I had just, I still had ITB. I hadn't sold the company at that point. So there were 80 people in that company that, you know, I'm the, their boss Uh and CEO and they're waiting. Yeah. So it was tough. It was a really tough start to something. So you're not plus size. I'm not. How did you get this idea? (laughs) What was the origin of this idea before you brought it to her? What did you notice in the marketplace? You know, it's really interesting. So my career has been spent around fashion and advertising for the kind of 12 years previous to starting Good American. And I had like really strong or I began to develop really strong ideas about the way women were depicted in advertising, especially around the race and the size conversation. So I think, you know, to understand my feelings about this is, you know, you really have to go back. What was I being asked to do? A brand would come to me and say, you know, we need you to cast influencers or talent. And this one needs to resonate in this market. And this one needs to resonate in that market. And it was literally like casting by, you know, numbers (laughs) like okay like the South American region needs this kind of girl and the Asian region needs this kind of girl and I was like come on that is not how women shop that is not how we you know feel connected to a brand to be so narrow and so that frustrated me very very early on and then I started really to understand how you know looking at my own family looking at my best friend who is plus size how out of the fashion conversation they were and the ramifications of that so for me you know to put on an outfit and feel good and feel confident in it is what gives you so much power like for me I'd always use clothes in that way right if I was going for a meeting at Intel I'd put on a jacket that made me feel like a power woman and I'd be able to do that because you know Clothes are accessible. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know that feeling though, yeah. right? It's like you put on a kick-ass pair of shoes or an amazing jacket and you're like, you feel a certain way as you walk into a room. But that isn't the reality for the large majority of women. And when I started to beaver away, because I am a furious kind of researcher beaver. by nature. <laughs> I love that you laugh at that. That makes me really love you. Um, but, you know, as I started to really look into it, I realised that 
most women are outside of the traditional size curve and in that lie an opportunity but also you could start to make a difference to some of the stuff that I was seeing in advertising in the images that are portrayed to women and if you're pregnant with a little girl at the same time the stars aligned for me. I was like, what do I want her to see? What do I want her to kind of grow up with? What do I really know really well? And how can I have a company that's much more uh, impactful? Because at that point, I was like, you know, I was a schlepping salesperson, right? I was just like selling my wares campaign to campaign. And I really wanted to have a business that I cared about a lot more. I mean, I've spent, I spent, you know, the bulk of my career helping women feel confident. I think I can I think I can confidently say that. Feels yes. kind of weird. But in fashion, did it for a decade, right? And there are certain things I'm sure that are parallels between Good American and Nasty Gal and every successful 100%. brand. When you're making people feel uh, when you're making people feel confident, right? There's the idea of making women feel confident. Um, in a deck with Chloe Kardashian and then there's actually doing it. Yeah. What do you think are the essentials of bringing a brand to life? What have you done with your brand or your creative that has actually made women feel that way? Yeah, it's a it's such a good point. And especially in this time when the words diversity and inclusivity are like just thrown around, like, again, you know, campaign to campaign. For me, I was very, very clear coming from the background that I did that I needed to make my business something that was truly inclusive and there were ways to do that but they were very when I look back I was like I'm going to shoot like all the products on all the sizes and then I looked at what that meant and that meant like a three-day e-com shoot turning into a 10-day e-com shoot and you know what it's like when you're a startup you're you know scrimping and scraping every little penny that you can it was expensive and it was time consuming and you didn't always I didn't always get the buy-in even from my own team that those things were worth it and a worthwhile place to spend the energy but if you speak to any women the idea that they can come onto our site and see a pair of jeans on a size that's their size you do that game changing yes wow yeah on all sizes so we shoot every single pair of jeans we do a shot on size zero zero through 24 and every piece of clothing is shot so we choose you know three sizes so you can just see like a blouse. tearing up it's a game changer it's amazing right and it really makes people sit, feel seen and it makes them feel valued as a customer and it also makes great business sense because conversion is wild when you see you know clothing on someone similar to you you, you can't try on a pair of jeans which are one of the most difficult things to actually buy yeah seeing them in your size I mean because I, you know, I go on shop bop or whatever <laughs> and I look at, oh, the model's wearing this, but, and this is her measurements and she's yeah. like 5'10 always. And I'm like, God, how does that work for me? <laughs> how does that translate? Does that work for me? And, and no, it doesn't is the question. And so you can imagine if that's your experience and that for me was like the big unlock, right? If that's your experience that you're immediately shut out, how do you ever feel any affinity with that brand and how do you ever feel good about what you're trying to do like you're just trying to put an outfit together and so for me it seemed such a there was like this huge huge disconnect and when I talk about representation mattering it's not just about size but it really is in the whole conversation around what it means to be truly diverse and what I found is that of course we could do that in our campaigns like everybody else but that was about having 
women and men within the company that were representative of my customer base, which is everyone. And therefore, the decisions that are made are representative of everyone. You're not dealing in fashion where it's typically, you know, a lot of white people and mostly white men at the table making the decisions. And so representation has become something that for us is you know, it's nothing to do with campaign. Of course, I have like a mix of incredible women in my campaign. It's good American. But do you have that at the decision making table within the company? And that's the single biggest difference at Good American. One of the reasons that fashion brands don't aren't aren't size inclusive is because for every certain number of sizes, and I don't know where you do this, you have to grade it. Yeah. Right. You have to create a whole new sample. You can't just go from one sample or one uh you can't just go from one pattern, size zero, and totally. just say, like, okay, we're just going to... Sk- pockets move. No. Everybody's... It's a, it's a different design entirely, and it's so interesting. So we're making three patterns for every SKU to cover the size range, and it really is uh, technically very, very complex, not to... Ma- you know, and also very uh, expensive yeah. because you're talking about bigger fabric yields. The other thing that was really, really hard for me was just finding the talent. So, you know, you could find designers, especially denim designers in L.A., but finding people who had the plus size experience, you know, I became that girl that was going around that was poaching designing everyone. things of like <laughs> niceness. That, yeah, we're actually cute. <laughs> exactly. No, of course. It was like re retraining everyone. And sometimes, you know, you get there was so much pushback in the early days. You've sent us the wrong measurements. Like, no, we haven't sent you the wrong measurements. It's just a big size. Oh, well, we don't have the machines that can knit without seams. You have to put three seams in. Well, then it's not the same garment. So then you're like, okay, then we can't work with this particular factory, manufacturer. It was it was really, really difficult. And I think that I give my team a lot of credit because it's full of people that, whether you're in accounts or you're in design or you work in logistics, that everyone believes they're on a mission. And so it builds this mentality in the company of don't take no for an answer. We will find a way. It's not going to be simple. It might take a bit longer. It might be a bit more expensive. But there is this whole idea that good American will find a way. And so, you know, the company's been built on that mentality. So you do not just one pattern, but three patterns. So three times the work than the average apparel business. And on top of it, you're casting 24, (laughs) no, plus zero, zero, 25 and 26, including zero and double zero. It's a lot of sizes. That's a lot of models. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of models. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of effort. But here's the thing. It's all incredibly worth it. You know, Good American has been such an enormous commercial success so quickly that the rest of the market completely stood up and took notice. First, we saw people, you know, saying, oh, maybe we should shoot on extra models. Maybe we should add, you know, some extra sizes. Then we started to see all these kind of startup brands that were in plus size and then they were like it's not about plus size it should be inclusive so they started making you know the smaller sizes so it's been one of those businesses that actually has changed and is changing the entire way people shop and the entire face of fashion because it's commercially successful not because we do great stuff people in the business are looking at it going wow they're doing all this and they're making money that is the thing that changes everything. And it's been important for you. I know you sell to Nordstrom, you have a wholesale business today, and some retailers separate plus size from the primary women's denim department. Yeah. And you you and Chloe are not a fan of that. No. I just think that that is, um, you know, we don't accept 
segregation anymore <laughs> right you don't choose your friends like that it's like oh I'll go shopping with my girlfriends that are similar size to me you just go shopping right and you just want to be in the same place and buy the cute things and so it's it's such simple stuff but we just think as a matter of principle that our clothes should be kept together and should all be in the nice part of the department store where all the other nice brands are. Have you ever had to lobby a retailer to change the way that they sell merchandise separately, right, segregated sizes and say, like, listen, you're only going to get good American if you merchandise it inclusively, double zero to 24 all the way up in yeah. one place. Yeah, we and you know what happened? I stopped lobbying because like, you either get it or you don't. And in the beginning, we had proof of concept because we went out of the gate and had incredible sales that were very well publicized. And so for me, I kind of stopped I stopped fighting after a week. There was a bit of ego in the beginning where, you know, like really sexy, like retailers would come to me and kind of not get it. And I'd be like, no, but let me just explain. And then I was like, oh, you know what? You're not ready. And so it was again, having the confidence in what we were doing to just go, well, you know what? You'll get it when you get it. And so I stopped lobbying. So you mentioned your highly publicized launch. Yeah. You did a million dollars in a day. I know, how mental. What was that like? <laughs> of course, you, you feel great. Like when it's happening, you know, because you can watch businesses like ours on a screen and see the traffic and watch it ticking away. And, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning, I was like this hero. And by 12, everyone was looking at me around the table and like, oh, maybe you slightly underestimated the opportunity. And then by three, it was like, you are completely out of your depth you don't know what you're doing you're not an apparel person and you basically just missed your entire opportunity because I was sold out and so that for me was like my first lesson in customer experience because I was like what do you do we've built up all this momentum we had this like you know 10 days launch momentum where we were kind of you know just bubbling away on social and then I had no product to sell all these people that were clearly really excited about the brand and coming to the site trying to buy stuff and so um I just like picked up the phone and got an email and started speaking to people and trying to let them know that I would have products for them eventually did you have investors at that time yeah I did they were not happy (laughs) and at what point I'm guessing pretty soon after you had to bring in people who had had deep experience in apparel when we launched we were three people right we were my my old assistant who came from uh, from London and moved with me I asked him if he would come to LA and he was like yeah absolutely I didn't know until we got here that he'd never been to LA and agreed to move so that showed you know some confidence in my abilities and my ideas Um, and then I had one guy who you know still works for me now who was the director of e-com so in my mind I had that covered that was all the stuff that I didn't know because I know about fashion and I know a bit about apparel and it was just denim three styles you know so but but I really didn't know what I didn't know and I um I kind of suffered in that first that first couple of weeks of really figuring out okay what next because you can't turn around you need so many more people than that yeah you need really you need more people (laughs) um but you know for me it was again it was just one of these things where I had real life timings you know I had a 12 week old baby and a toddler and a another company and nothing was ideal no maternity leave for you no no maternity leave but you know it's like you know what it's if you run your own business that stuff is tough and something has to give you don't get 
everything. You don't get like, you know, a, a brand new hot startup and beautiful little kids and an amazing husband and everything working out. It's like, whoever's telling you that is just lying. Did you bring your newborn to meetings? I did. I brought my newborn to meetings because it was, you know, it was my meeting. And so I was like, I have to feed her. Yeah. <laughs> she she needs me to stay alive. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm super lucky with stuff like that. You know, it's... My life isn't hard. I have childcare. I have a Swedish husband. You know, it's like, which means. Wait, what does Swedish husband mean? Oh, it's a big thing. You know, Swedes are like, it's probably like the most feminist community on earth. In Sweden, you know, a couple gets 18 months fully paid time off for maternity leave and they split it between the mum and dad as they so wish. And so when you're raised with that mentality that childcare isn't the preserve of the mother, that it's something to be shared. The mentality is exactly that. So my husband is someone who, in you know that way, he, we're a couple. We do things. Have together either of you ever taken kids. eighteen months? Never. <laughs> we're taking eighteen days. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the other thing. You know, I'm also married to an entrepreneur who has his own, uh, you know, businesses Frame and a denim. lot of stuff going on. Frame. Yeah. Amongst I'm, many things. Are you wearing frame? I usually am. I'm, I've got some frame on am. somewhere, usually. Yeah, but you know that my husband and I are both pretty ambitious people and you have to work out where your priorities are, but also how you're going to support each other. And so very, you know, on the launch of Good American um, at Nordstrom at The Grove, you know, it was this really amazing moment. You know, Chloe was there. We had 25 women on the stage and there was this feeling that something great was about to happen. And I, all I could think about was, I have to get on a plane tomorrow and go back to England. And my husband looked at me and he was like, I think we need to move to LA. And it was like everything that was in my head and I just couldn't get it out. And so that was, you know, that was the beginning of that. So it was the first launch. There was the first launch that was incredibly successful, Mm -hmm. but super messy. Messy. And now you've launched so many styles. You've launched new categories successfully without angry customers, I'm guessing. (laughs) What are the elements of a launch that you've found to be successful? You know, that's a really good question. For us, it's about having authenticity in the category, right? When you have a, a startup like ours, you get all sorts of offers, um, sunglasses and fragrance and, you know, licensing opportunities. And I think that I'm very clear about what Good American does. And if we can't innovate in a category, and I mean that from a kind of fit and fabrication perspective, because that's what we do, right? We are the best people at making clothes that are going to actually fit a real woman's body so we cut our denim with more of a curve than a regular brand does because most women have curves and certainly on the higher end of the size spectrum they do have curves and so when we went into active wear we were like we have an idea about fabrication and we have an idea about fit that's different from what's in the marketplace right now so when we approach launches it has to be in a way that makes sense for good american and our ethos and we're very very clear about what is a yes and what is a no the question almost answers itself um, when you have those parameters and so I've been pretty strict about sticking to those real quick I have two words for you girl boss rally that's right we're back and this year we're introducing a little something called journeys you can choose from different tracks like the explorer the leader the founder or the VIP and each one is going to come with a schedule that is tailored to your professional experience. When you register for a specific journey, you get guaranteed access to all programming and workshops in your journey so you don't have to stress about selecting your schedule before the Girl Boss Rally. So we're really tailoring this to you from all the things that we've learned over the course of the last five Girl Boss Rallies. And what you'll leave with 
In addition to knowing a lot and having tools, utilities to take out into the world, to take back home and improve your life, is relationships. And relationships can be hard to build. We make networking so easy. It's actually mandatory at the Girl Boss Rally. So that's something you know you'll leave with. You can find a co-founder, a friend, a confidant, someone to come to the Girl Boss Rally with next year because we've seen that happen many, many times. We've revamped the Girl Boss Rally this year, so you can expect three hours of dedicated workshops tailored to your professional needs, and you get a special welcome bag with an exclusive Girl Boss notebook, pen, and pins, and you get a complimentary breakfast and brunch, and you get admission to our evening happy hour at the Girl Boss Rally. So if you want to find out more, head on over to girlbossrally.com and register today. In 2016, when you launched, you received 50% more returns for sizes between 14 and 16. Yeah. And that was, you know, it's a hard thing to see because we don't, first of all, we don't get a lot of returns, not because we're some spectacular business, but we have a lot of stretch in our clothes. It so sounds spectacular. Wear, it, I know, it, feel, it feels spectacular. Let me just go back. We're a spectacular business that has almost no returns. Congratulations. <laughs> um, no, so we have a very low return rate. And what I noticed was that between 14 and 16, there was... more returns than in any other size. And so that made me, and again, a lot of this, because I'm not an apparel expert, I didn't understand and I didn't see it. And so I didn't make any assumptions about it early on. I just went into the office like I usually do on a Monday, either really happy about something or really pissed about something. So I was like, why does this happen? This makes no sense. And I spoke to, you know, the head of e-com and he was like, yeah, I don't understand either. Uh, Talked to design. I spoke to design. They didn't understand. And then I went, ended up in tech. And our technical designers were like, yeah, of course, that completely makes sense because that's where the pattern changed. And I was like, oh, well, what does that mean? And so when you look at the sizes on an Excel spreadsheet, you can see that there's a jump and that jump equates to more than there is between a 12 and a 14 or an 8 and a 10. Um, And so it became very, very simple. I was like, well, we'll just make an in-between size. And of course, everyone then looks at you and goes, Emma, you can't do that. 15's a junior size and no one will understand it. And it doesn't make any sense. And I was like, of course it makes sense. Like you just put one in the middle, do the in the middle numbers, figure it out. And so they did it on paper. And again, it was one of those times where the measurements, they get sent back from the factory. They're like, these don't look right. This is not any kind of standard measurement. Um, but I kind of had a feeling in my head, if you're getting that many returns and you could give them something that fits, there must be like millions of women that are in the middle. They're not quite missy, but they're not quite plus. They're just this like forgotten middle. Um, and of course we launched it. And so goes the story. It's our fourth best-selling size now. So we sell hundreds of thousands of pairs of size 15. Um, And it was just one of those things that, you know, was obvious, like it was glaring. It was there. It was in the data. You just had to like make it, make it and she will come. And I'm curious because it was very early that you noticed this opportunity. And some of us pay attention to things like this early on in our businesses and some of us don't. Yeah. Did you have an analytics platform or did somebody just say or you just noticed you're just paying that much attention that that was the bulk of your returns? You know, I, this is such a lovely question. So, no, I didn't have a, a an analytics platform and I had no head of data analytics at that point. Um, I have been obsessed with reading customer reviews from the beginning because when you work in a business like I did previously in entertainment marketing, you're always making these hunches. Oh, I think Angelina Jolie's the perfect person. Why? You know, there was no analytics to back up those kind of big feelings for someone to spend a gazillion dollars on, you know, bringing Angelina Jolie 
into their campaign, just a hunch that maybe it would work. Um, and the brilliant thing about our business is that we do sit on all of this data. But in those early days, this was just my hobby on a Sunday was to read customer reviews. And it still yeah. kind of is yeah. today. Right? How do you get the sense of what people are saying? And so I'm in... I'm in the reviews, I'm in the comments, I'm looking at what people are saying. And of course, when I went back, then the data was presented to me. It was like, oh, yeah, like, you're right. There's a lot of complaints. There's a lot of returns. And actually, when you look at the numbers, this is how it jumps out. You've pitched a lot of people, big people, investors, talent, brands, everybody, everybody but me. (laughs) (laughs) What Should I ele- be pitching you? Should no, I'm trying I don't to think know. What do I have to pitch you now? I don't know. I never like to miss an opportunity. I'll put some pants on. <laughs> what are the elements of a good pitch? I think the elements of a good pitch are knowing, you know, I'm, I've said it before, I'm a very researched person. So back in my days of, you know, entertainment agency world, I would know everything about the brand I was going in. I'd have seen their last campaign. I'd have an opinion on it. I would have done my research. I would have spoken to people. I don't feel like you can ever go in with too much um, information. So I'd be very prepared. Um, And, you know, knowing your competition is a big thing. Like a lot of people always say, like, you know, I'm so focused on what I'm doing. I don't think about anybody else. Like I do. I think about everyone else. I think I know I know every brand that sells around me, slightly above me, slightly below me, who's coming up. You know, I'm one of those people. I like to understand the competition. I think that's a great way to kind of safeguard yourself, your business and, you know, just that idea of being aware of the marketplace in which you sit is like so important. But then so much comes down to confidence. I know a lot of women and a lot of my own friends have a feeling that everyone in the room knows more than they do somehow, that all the jargon that's kind of, you know, thrown out somehow, like, you know, just is, you know, something that you just weren't let in on. And I learned very, very early on that most people are putting up a good front in those meetings. OKR, LTV, <laughs> CAC. You're like, what? what? So I always ask. So I never, ever, in the beginning, I had no idea what any of those, uh, you know, um, I was going to say algorithms, which acronyms? shows you how, thank you, acronyms. I had no idea what any of them are were, and I was the boss algorithms of everybody. Algorithms Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I would just ask, and I think that's completely fine. Nobody ever thinks bad of the person that goes, I'm sorry, like, what do you mean? What does that mean? Because otherwise you're just all sitting there lost. And half the time, half the table feels the same it as you do. It disarms people. Completely. Completely. And it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning is entirely disarming. So I think that just being being confident about what you do know, knowing you don't need to know everything, that's completely fine. Um, it, you know, they, those are just good tips for walking into into every room, like have a belief in yourself and what you're putting forward um, that isn't, you know, shook by you kind of getting something wrong or fumbling your words or not really following the conversation. Like I've I've been in some of the, the biggest meetings when, you know, I had to raise finance for Good American about a year and a half in. And sometimes I felt great about those meetings. And other times I was like, oh, Emma, but you know, it's like, there's always another meeting like what do you know what I mean it's like it doesn't matter at the end of the day like there'll be someone else and and most people don't really look at those things they're looking at a a bigger picture and a culmination of things and events and stuff and so I think just you know especially for women just being a little bit less hard on yourself goes a really long way but don't pretend don't pretend never pretend because I think people see through that immediately and I think that's one of the great things about Good American as a brand like 
We never pretend, you know, as we're going through this huge journey at the moment towards, you know, building a more sustainable company. I ain't going to lie. I'm not going to pretend. We don't have it all worked out. We don't know everything. And and nor does anyone, by the way, you know, you want to be really, really sustainable. Don't make any clothes. Like we're in the business of making clothes and we're trying to figure it out. And I think that just being honest, taking people on a journey with you, like that goes a long way in any situation. People so. give you permission to learn as long as you're showing an effort that you're trying to improve. 100%. You know, I, I have a general rule in my, my office, which is, you know, it's okay for everyone to fail. It's not okay for you not to learn from it. And that's that simple. So you and Chloe are friends. Yeah, we are now. But you're also business partners. Yes. How do you balance that? What is a good co-founder relationship like? How do you How do you handle disagreements? You know, it's really interesting. I think Chloe and I, first of all, it's for both of us, it's not our first business. And um, we have enormous respect for one another and what we do, right? I don't do what Chloe does and Chloe doesn't do what I do. And we kind of stay out of each other's respective roles. I'm not trying to turn myself into like a superstar influencer with a gazillion followers. Like I don't care. And I'm so grateful that I have a business partner who does that really, really well. <laughs> um, and Chloe happens to be very, very good at understanding what women are going to want and having a feeling she's been kind of connected to American women of a certain age for a really long time through what she's done and she's got a great way of kind of feeding into that um, and being able to ask her fan base and get answers from them and so we use that and what I do Chloe isn't so good at so you know I'm this day-to-day CEO. I'm running the team. I'm looking at every part of the business every single day. Um, And there's very rarely disagreements because we just don't encroach on each other's territory in that same way. We speak every day and we might look at some branding and be like, I prefer route A and I prefer route B. And then we'll figure it out. Who reports to you? Everyone. Like individual, like who are your direct reports in a business like this? So in a business like this... um, it's all of the departmental directors. So director of e-com, uh, the CFO, the president of product, the CMO, so the person that runs marketing, um, the head of logistics and inventory, and who else? I said, oh, and then head of sales, I think director the nuts, of sales. The nuts and bolts of your career starting in event production. It's production. Mm-hmm. It's different than apparel production. Yes, very. But you know that combining that with entertainment marketing and fashion partnerships seems really like the perfect trifecta of experience yeah, to I do what you're, you're doing. I think you're really right about that. You know, when you work in production, you're essentially managing, you know, creative expectations. So it's calendar management. And so much of what I've done in the past has been about, or so much of what I do now in apparel is about managing a bunch of calendars. When you're opening stores and you're working with architects and you're managing rebranding and replatforming a site, it's it's all about making sure everything happens on time and everybody else is doing their Those job. Those things are also fun. <laughs> I know. When, they are the best oh my parts God. of the job. When like, people start far. serving up renderings to you. I know. It's like, oh, look at all these marbles. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. It's the be- it really is the best part of the job. It's <laughs> so true. Approving pretty things. Yes. Um, so there's a question, a couple of questions I ask everybody that comes on Girl Boss Radio. And what we do here is explore this weird concept of success, which mm-hmm. can mean so many things. It can mean selling a million dollars worth of product on, on your first 
you know, day of launch. It can mean being a great mom and taking time with your kids or taking a day off or giving yourself a bubble bath or whatever. What is six? And it changes, right? So what does success mean to you right now? It's a, you know, it's, it's one of those things I'm glad you said right now, because it changes all the time. Um, now that I have very young children, success is being able to manage my own time and how I, how I interact with my business and how I interact with my family. That's so important. And really understanding happiness like in my life. You know, there's two things that I value a lot. I get a lot of stuff done because I take my ambition and myself and my happiness like really seriously and I plan into those things. I have a way of dealing with the fact that I'm an ambitious person uh, a way of dealing with the fact that I really want to see happiness in my life all the time and the idea of me being really important is also something that I plan around and so I think that the culmination of all of those things and taking those things seriously knowing that they're important and planning into those things is the way I've kind of found happiness and that gives me like the the sense of success that that allows me is where I am right now. Do you schedule happiness on your calendar or is your calendar ever unscheduled? Is Uh, there ever room? No, well, you know, I don't skip the weekends are not so scheduled, but I schedule, you know, I love to travel. I schedule trips and moments with my family and I put those above everything else. Like, you know, there's there's certain times and I look at the last three years, it's like I would have done nothing but a good American if I'd have just let that take me. Right. Because that that's what happens. And I just think it's really important. Like my ambition is really important to me. And so I'm really happy to spend a lot of my hours in my job. But you know, likewise, it's really important for me to see things that I find like, you know, enriching and like have those moments where I get into places that I've never been before. And last year I was like, I'm going to discover California because it's so beautiful and I live here at the moment. And so, you know, just making time to make those things a priority, that's really important. If, you know, if at this stage of my career, at this level of success, I can't say that once every three months, I'm going to take a four day trip, I would be doing something wrong. And those things make me really happy. Wait, how often are you taking trips? Every quarter. I go like I go off and like, you know, and it might just be I go up to Big Sur, I go to Palm Springs or whatever, but I do something like I take a moment. I'm like, I'm going like on Thursday night, like out. Is Big Sur your favorite? I love that. I think it has to be. Isn't it? It's like such an amazing place. Magical. Yeah, it is totally magical. And so it sounds like you're really good at this. And this is another question I ask everybody. We have this thing called Girl Boss Moments on mm-hmm. Girl Boss Radio. We have it on the Girl Boss Professional Network. It's something we talk about a lot. And it's just, it's kind of like, it's like a hallmark moment. It's just a moment in your recent history where you did one of those things that you just described. Yeah. What was your most recent Girl Boss moment? You know, there's so many. It's, it's always lovely, like, you know, for me, selling. ITB was a huge moment in my career and something I was really proud of and I felt like girl bossy when it happened but they always happen to me in like the smaller moments like if you were writing my bio like that's in there but the stuff that like really gets me is like when you can give like an opportunity to somebody there there happens to be a couple of women that I work with that have been with me since really early on that have transitioned in their career and then they get like a massive bonus and they're so grateful and they feel so good at what they do and that's when I feel really good because I'm taking people on the journey with me and that is like the game changer right like when I can see potential in someone 
like some other people have seen that in me and kind of like bring them on the journey and that to work out I don't think there's anything much better than that like you know and then when people kind of like you know say to you like thank you so much this wouldn't have happened had you not seen x y and z in me or put me forward for that or you know and I do I push a lot of women in in a direction that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise taken or they don't see it in themselves and I do and so they're probably the moments where I feel the best about what I'm doing. Emma, thank you so much for joining me on Girlboss Radio. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Girlboss Radio. Thank you to Emma for coming on Girlboss Radio and sharing her story with us. And thank you for downloading and streaming Girlboss Radio every week on every platform. If you love what you heard, tag us at Girlboss on Instagram with the hashtag GirlBossRadio, and we might just reshare your post. And as always, be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. All right, that's it for me. I'll talk to you next week.